Welcome, listeners, to the Religious Studies Project. My name is Christopher Cotter, and I'm joined, as ever, by my inestimable and inimitable co-host, David Robertson. And this week's podcast is... That's an interview that my co-host David Robertson has recorded with James Capallo of University College Cork, and they spoke about minority religions in the secret police archives, which is fascinating topic. I'm really looking forward to it. James is a good friend of the project, um, and um, we, we actually had a, a attempt at recording an interview before. So this is good that we got an opportunity to do it again. And we're looking forward to working with James and um, other members of the Irish Society for the Academic Study of Religion um, over the coming year to produce the most epic conference for the BASR, who are also our generous sponsors, along with Nasser and the IAHR. But for now, over to David and James. I'm here in Edinburgh on a beautiful sunny day, and I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. James Capolo. Um, from the University College Cork, uh, he's, where he's senior lecturer in the study of religion. First of all, welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Thank you. Very pleased to be here. And we are pleased to be uh, talking to you today about your research programme, which is called Creative Agency and Religious Minorities, Hidden Galleries in the Secret Police Archives in Central and Eastern Europe. And the obvious place to start then is to tell us a little bit about the project. Great. Well, it's a bit of a mouthful, but um, the project really um, focuses on um, the secret police archives as a resource for the history and anthropology, let's say, of contemporary religions in the region. And anyone knows a little bit about Eastern European history, familiar with obviously the um, authoritarian sort of communist regimes and before them the fascist regimes that were held sway in, in most of the region. And with the, the change of system that came in the, uh, 1989, 1994 of the Berlin Wall, um, secret police archives, the archives of the security services began to be opened up, um, to, to, um, victims, but also to the scholarly community, to researchers to, to look into. And, um, this created a really sort of dramatic change, if you like, in, uh, the study of religions in the region. Um, I mean, prior to that, I mean, there was a lot of Western scholarship on religions in East and Central Europe, and that was very much um, of a kind of advocacy scholarship type. So um, because groups were persecuted under communism, um, Western scholars tended to sort of advocate for their um, human rights, political rights, and so on. Post the change of system, the, the archives um, took on an identity as um, the site of truths about that past. Truths in the sense that people wanted to discover, you know, who the agents had been, who the collaborators had been. Um, focus was on, you know, mainstream uh, political actors, but also mainstream religious figures from the period, bishops that had been arrested, incarcerated, sometimes died and so on. So um, the, the archive represented a, a, an opportunity. But uh, at the heart of the use of the archives, if you like, there's a central paradox, which was that these archives were produced by authoritarian, totalitarian regimes, um, which were discredited. Um, but at the same time, they were considered to hold truths about mm -hmm. the period. And um, so the opening of the archive actually created a lot of controversy. There were blackmail cases, especially of kind of, like I say, high-profile politicians and, and religious figures who were compromised by the findings. 
It was all part of a process called lustration, which was you know, vetting in post-communism, vetting people that will go into the public sphere to check that they were not compromised by their past. Mm. So from a study of religion's perspective, um, you know, there, there are um, some important sort of questions, if you like, some important um, um, uh, dilemmas that face the scholar. And in 2014, I was lucky enough to spend, um, had a sabbatical, so I spent six months in the secret service archives in Romania and also a couple of months in the Republic of Moldova looking at KGB files. Um, and what I discovered um, was that they also contain, apart from containing these incredible biographies of people's lives, which were collected by agents and often, you know, um, extracted under duress, under quite um, extreme circumstances sometimes, they also contain a gallery of confiscated materials, Mm -hmm. artistic products. So not, I mean, not generally the kind of um, more impressive forms of art, but um, the ephemera of religious lives, pamphlets, leaflets, uh, photographs, um, hymns, poems, notebooks, postcards, all this kind of stuff are in the, in the archives. Um, and um, this is when I began to think about, you know, how can those archives be used in a different way that perhaps will not um, endanger the archive because the mm-hmm. archives were, were under threat of closure in a couple of Eastern European countries mm-hmm. because of all the scandals. And um, scholars um, across the globe actually campaigned for those archives to remain open. But um, it highlighted the fact that they need to be used in a different way. They need to be not investigated simply as sites of truths. It was all about truths and texts. So texts that tell us the truth about what happened at a particular time. But they also contain this visual and material component. Mm. And so that is really what the project is all about. I mean, it's, it's looking into the archives um, to explore this material, um, we're taking a material religion approach, vernacular religion approach to the materials that are there, but then also beginning to question the legitimacy, if you like, of those archives to hold mm. sacred materials. You know, the, the question of the legitimacy of colonial archives and museums to hold the sacred patrimony of indigenous peoples is kind of well known. It's been going for several decades now. But no one's ever thought about that in the in the European context. Okay, mm-hmm. so we have these 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 archives of stuff, which are the product of an arbitrary power exerted over a population. What is their right to retrieve those confiscated items? So the project has a couple of stages. I mean, the first stage is the the basic research phase. Okay, what's out there? It'll be the mapping and kind of creation of a digital archive um, on the basis of that, and obviously the production of general sort of scholarly works about what we can learn about um, cultural production, material production under authoritarianism, how religious communities use new media, photo montage, film, um, to get their message across. Um, the history of the use of new media for political purposes from the same period is well written, but no one's written anything about how religious groups, especially religious minorities, managed to um, engage with those mm. new media. So that's the first stage. The second stage then is... Um, taking some of those items back to the communities that produce them. I mean, we're talking now, there's probably a generation gap, but we, we, we'll be fortunate enough to find some people still alive that remember the, the sort of production and the context within which those items were, were confiscated by the security services. So we go back to the communities mm. and um, explore the meaning of that period and 
the the material and visual artistic products of the period in the light of the changes that have taken place since mm. because what we have today is is a you know um the emergence of democracies and more open societies across eastern europe and that is something that you know perhaps we in the west take for granted but the societal prejudices that were underlie and were constructed by these extreme regimes that um were extremely um wary of um of of new religious groups that emerged more so, so than relig- religion at, at all in at all, cases, but yeah. more so than mainstream religious groups Main, mm-hmm. you know there, there's been a, pl- a lot of research church history if you like of mainstream and how yeah, they yeah. manage the situation but Religious minorities, sectants, as they were generally referred to, were considered to be especially dangerous. Mm-hmm. So they were the object of the most intense sort of uh, oppression and persecution. Um, so the project will, will engage with those communities, try and understand, you know, how they relate to those objects now, and begin a new conversation with the institutions that hold them. And this is, again, building on, on there's a movement in museology, the new, the new museology, the new museum movement, that really engage critically with ethically what you do with materials that you know mm. perhaps compromised by the means by which they were collected. So posing those questions to the institutions is the final phase, and, a, and an exhibition will be constructed on that basis. Wonderful. Um, we've uh, we've talked about this idea of um, well cultural how how we deal with displaying and talking about. Um, for want of a better word, ethnographic material in, in museums, but also in other contexts, um, quite a few times in the Religious Studies Project. Um, but this is a really interesting example. You kind of touched on this already, but um, we're well used to this sort of post-colonial critique of um, the, the ins and outs of displaying um, the cultural products of you know, far away countries that, you know, with, with the, I'm doing scare quotes, primitive people and, you know, um, and their indigenous religions. But we're not been so good at applying that same critique to cultures closer to home. And do you think this, this project has anything uh, to, to offer that? Um, oh, certainly. And, and the thing is, I think there are, there are two aspects to that in terms of the project. One is that, you know, there's an ongoing debate in the study of East Central Europe mm. um, about the relationship between post-socialism and post-studies of post-socialism and post-colonialism. Because many of the societies were actually post-colonial societies as well as being post-socialist societies. <laughs> yeah, so they're, 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 they're the two, the two over, overlay each other. Um, um, so the importation, if you like, of post-colonial discourses into East Central European studies is is ongoing, and it started around you know questions of of um, difficult knowledge around heritage sites and so on. So that's that's that's, that's the emergence of a movement there. Um, the other is um, you know around um, questions of of in- inclusivity in society um, and the way that. Well, the vast distances you talked about, you know, between the ethnographic other and the self mm-hmm. have actually been completely collapsed. Yeah. I mean, the world is much smaller in the sense that we no longer can take for granted the fact that the materials I have from an indigenous people in Brazil are not going to be visited by indigenous Brazilians. They will be, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. So that, that has collapsed. It's coming to that realization that you, I mean, it, it was the product of, yeah, the kind of ethnographic eye, the ethnographic sort of colonial eye, but also, Romantic nationalism in Europe, where peasants were the other. Mm-hmm. Again, the peasant, you know, the classic peasant class in anthropological terms has disappeared. Um, but we continue to display things as if 
you know, in Ireland, for example, there's a romantic west of Ireland that was Irish-speaking and epitomized the nation. That same problematic goes for, you know, um, uh, peoples within most nation states in, 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 in Europe mm-hmm. that could be exoticized and, and represented as, a, as an other. Um, and what we're trying to do with this is collapse that. And the engaged part of the project, um, I mean, inclusivity, the, you know, a more inclusive, holistic narrative, if you like, um, to try and encourage kind of mainstream society to, to, uh, question their distancing mm. of the enemy, the other, the, the heretic, the, the sectant and so on to see human stories behind those, which have tended not to find a place within scholarship. Yeah. 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 And, and what's very interesting is, of course, that the distance is not only collapsed geographically, but uh, chronologically as well. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the fall of the, the Berlin Wall. So we're talking about something within living memory and, uh, you know, and within recent living memory. And I think there's an important message there that we can apply to ethnography in general. We tend to see when we're talking about these, uh, you know, so, so-called primitive um, cultures, that as soon as we arrive as colonials and as scholars, that we've somehow changed this eternal, timeless tradition that was always there. But the more ethnography that we do, we realise that things are constantly shifting. And, and this is an example um, within living memory for me of it changing once, but there will be older people, as you've said, who mm. can remember that situation even starting. And so we have two dramatic changes within living memory. And who's to say that that's not been the case anywhere else? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, one of the classic sort of critiques of early anthropology, and Malinowski in particular, mm-hmm. is that, you know, um, the impact of British colonialism is not felt through his work. Um, and, um, yeah, there's this idea that when, when the academic arrives, when the scholar, when the ethnographer arrives, you somehow sort of create meaning around a place which mm-hmm. is okay it's translatable to other other cultures to sort of to a, to a, to an elite but it, it, for the people that lived that time it's that it's their time it was their life yeah, yeah. It, it is part of a continuity that on goes um you know i i'm old enough myself to remember very well the fall of the burning wall i, I was actually in budapest at the time um <laughs> nice. with with some friends and there were we were surrounded by east germans waiting to cross cross the um the berlin wall but my kind of i think my whole scholarly trajectory um it relates to the to the the iron curtain my father was a refugee from hungary from hungary in 1956 mm, i see and um as soon as I had the opportunity, I mean, I've been visiting Hungary through the 80s, the end of the sort of communist era when things were beginning to become a bit uh, more relaxed. But um, I returned to Romania to begin to do research immediately after the fall of communism. And um, this is where I've witnessed this incredible upsurge in interest in religion, plus the arrival of um, large numbers of American uh, US um, uh, missionaries from various uh, denominations, uh, many Baptists and so on, but also Harry Krishnas and different religious movements all mm. sort of, um, descended on Eastern Europe and, um, and they, and they were incredibly popular to begin with. At the same time, there was a resurgence of the mainstream churches mm. who tried to recapture that public space that they'd lost during, during communism. So I think that experience as, as you know, in my late teens, early twenties, um, 
has been on the back burner and sort of given birth ultimately to, to, to the project that, um, that, that, that we're starting uh, now. Um, I think, so yeah, as a general point, I mean, it, biographies of scholars are really important. Um, and in order for us to, it helps us be critical of our own positions, yes, basically. Yes. And so uh, exposing when something is like this, when something is actually quite close to my research topic, I think it's appropriate to sort of expose where I've come from. Um, and maybe preempt some of the some of the criticisms that uh, um, could be levelled at the project because it's far more engaged than many many mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. contemporary study of religions or religious studies projects would be. But I, I draw the line between or I try and delineate a position between advocacy and 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 engaged scholarship. Yeah. for me, there's a very clear separation there. Um, I was wanting to ask um, what particular kind of new religious movements are we talking about or minority religions um are we talking about here um are we predominantly talking about uh you know um the religions of of immigrants or are we talking about um quite innovative new religious movements what what was the the religious picture on the ground mm-hmm. so again going back to the sort of description of the, of the sort of inspiration for the project there's a lot of scholarship in fact, um, well, what characterizes scholarship on Eastern, religions in Eastern Europe today, two sort of very strong currents are um, scholarship from the West funded by um, um, institutions in the West that uh, have looked at um, all of the main, kind of, main um, kind of missionary, Christian missionary religions that were present in Eastern Europe and were persecuted. So Jehovah's Witnesses, Adventists, Baptists, Evangelicals of different kinds. So there's a large body of scholarship, historical mm-hmm. scholarship on those communities. At the same time, within the region, um, scholars from those communities have gone into the archive and sites to write their own histories of right. their oppression and persecution. So the project doesn't actually look at those groups because there's another group that's fallen off the radar, yeah, which, yeah. which are the more kind of locally inspired groups that formed around local charismatic leaders or local mm. powerful pilgrimage sites around um, prophets and seers um, behind um, monks and priests that f- came into conflict with the church, often because they felt the church had been compromised by its engagement with or collaboration with the, with the regime. So one group in particular that um, um, I've been looking at for the last four or five years now um, is called Inokentism. It comes from an orthodox uh, monk named Yuan um, uh, Inokenti, Inokenti mm-hmm. Levizor. Mm-hmm. He, he um, comes from the border region between Russia and, and Romania and initiated a, a, a charismatic movement that soon became labelled a sect. Um, and um, operated underground for over 100 years. So during the end of the Tsarist Russian period, during the fascist period in Romania, and um, during communism in Romania and the Soviet Union, um, the group lived underground, producing sort of or digging underground um, cells and communities um, and producing a very distinctive uh, visual um, culture of their own, a, a distinctive literary culture of their own um, that really I mean it can't be put down simply to resistance I, I don't like you know reducing any mm-hmm, movement to mm-hmm. resistance but actually there's a powerful dialogical relationship between the exertion of power on religious communities and the way that they can respond and it gives birth to these creative um, responses so one of the key uh, 
terms I use in, in sort of talking about the project is that it's, you know, it's taking emphasis away from religious communities as victims and looking at religious communities as creative communities. Yeah. Yeah. We've uh, we've talked to um, Milda Alashkaskiena recently about the the beginnings of of uh, the academic study of RS in that part of the world, and um, you know you touched on a similar point that that she did and and that we've talked about at the time of how it's interesting that for a part of the world which is ostensibly very Christian, um, I mean there's variations across the different countries of course, um, yet there's this enormous um, creativity um, within that Christian heritage. It's a very different situation than we see um, in the northern and uh, western European countries, perhaps more to do with the Protestant rather than Catholic context, mm-hmm. I think, where we see this sort of religious innovation happening um, or identifying as other than Christian. Um, is that something that you've found repeated in Romania and elsewhere? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I mean, I would, I would stress really that, 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 that each of the countries in East Central Europe are very different. From yes, one absolutely. Another. Yep. And the project covers three. It covers the Republic of Moldova, which was in the Soviet Union, Romania, which is a majority Orthodox country, um, and, uh, Hungary, which is split between mainly Catholic and Reformed. So mm. the project brings in, you know, these different cultural and religious, um, settings. Um, but, um, yeah, there was an incredible yearning, if you like, for spirituality and, um, people sort of in, in, towards the end of the Soviet Union and in the immediate post-Soviet period, um, experimented a lot in, with, with, with different forms of, um, religious seeking, um, uh, which wasn't, um, many of it wasn't actually beyond the pale for, for the Soviet regime and the communist regimes. They were just wary of the formation of communities that might go alongside that, that would produce a, sort of an, uh, an alternate, um, sort of source of authority for, for, mm. for groups. Um, so that's certainly the case. I mean, the countries that I, I've worked in, um, Romania especially is very strongly orthodox today. In fact, there's been a massive, um, revival in, in monasticism mm. in, in Romania. So I'd say on the whole, Romanians tend to stay within the Christian tradition. Protestant groups are becoming stronger, especially Pentecostals amongst the Roma community, which is a very interesting sort of area of investigation. It opens up all sorts of comparative uh, possibilities with with other parts of the world, Africa and Latin America, where mm. um, similarly, you know, Pentecostal forms of Christianity are very popular. Um, but the influence of those groups, you know, the, 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 the kind of the global spread of Pentecostalism, for example, has not really been really explored yet within Eastern Orthodoxy or within Catholicism in, in Eastern Europe um, fully. Indeed. So again, the group that I'm working on, I mean, they date back to 1909, 1908, which is, you know, very soon after the first Pentecostal appeared in the region. And coincidentally enough, the idea of the action of the Holy Spirit in the world was um, sort of preeminent. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the leader of the movement was considered to be the the Holy Spirit sort of embodied or incarnate and um, possession, um, exorcism, healing were right at the heart of the, of mm. the movement. And uh, women took on much greater, uh, much more important roles, 
had greater uh, sort of range of competences, if you like, within the religious community. So these are all very interesting questions to do with, um, yeah, the um, um, uh, gen- issues of, of gender yeah. and, and power and authority, um, and um, but also all, they're all features that we would expect to find in in you know more typical sort of new age or millennial uh, new religious movements in the west and i mean you, even just to take the classic example of um, you know when prophecy fails from the 50s it's exactly what we see we see you know the central leader identifying as an incarnation of the holy spirit we see prophecy we see healing central we see the role of women specifically as channelers um you know it's it's exactly the same uh, pattern that we would expect to see except within this uh, christian context and I think what drives much of so many of those points is also uh, marginalization. So yes. the process of, of being marginalized, feeling marginalized, um, encourages um, certain religious responses. Um, mm-hmm. And um, that's definitely that's certainly what you, what you, what you see in, um, in, um, in, in Eastern Europe. Um, I hesitate to, to say Eastern Europe or yeah, Central yeah, Europe yeah, yeah. Blank, in a kind of blanket way, but the other it's okay. Imp- we only give you twenty-five minutes, yeah, yeah. so we understand there's sometimes there's <laughs> the other important thing about the project actually is, which I forgot to mention earlier, is that because we've chosen three different countries and three different societies, um, the project has a has a, has a kind of uh, another mission to try and encourage kind of cross-cultural and um, also interdisciplinary but um, transnational collaboration between religious studies scholars in East Central Europe. Mm. I mean, this already goes on, but I think there's a lot more to be done. There's a lot of barriers in terms of language, and this has obviously been overcome to a certain extent by increasing use of English in the, in the academic um, sphere. But I think there are a lot of issues and questions that scholars um, in Lithuania and Hungary and Romania and Moldova and Ukraine have in common that they, 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 you know, they can engage with much more um, vibrantly, if you like, um, across across the region. Well, that's um, a, a perfect place to sort of draw this to a close because uh, the Religious Studies Project, we do, tr- um, we're striving to bring in uh, scholars from this part of the world, particularly, and uh, people talking about this part of the world. Um, so, you know, cu- um, we'll be certainly featuring a lot more. Um, hopefully, we'll be recording some at the EASR, um, the IAHR this year coming. Um, Marion Bowman's currently working on a project involving a lot of Eastern European scholars on the idea of pilgrimage. So hopefully we'll speak to her. But um, as an introduction to this field, this has been an absolute pleasure. So uh, thank you, James, for taking part in the Religious Studies Project. Thank you very much again for the invitation. You're welcome. And it was good to speak to James there. As you said, we'd had one um, failed attempt involving technical issues. So um, actually, this one worked out far better. Uh, so everything's good everything is good everything is golden so as ever check back for responses on the website and um we've got a voice next week that we haven't heard from in quite a while um hannah letinen uh, been speaking uh, on witchcraft in rural slovenia with uh, i'm going to really struggle with the name here but i'm going to go for it miriam mensesh oh good i was going to go menesh but yeah. message, yeah, yeah, okay. We don't know, but it's going to be it's going to be a fascinating interview, and it's great to hear from Hannah, um, who's been involved with the project for a long, long time, and you know, representing for the RSP out there in Finland. Yeah, and excellent to have a, a sort of slightly sort of Eastern European um, 
theme um, over these couple of weeks as well. Um, Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we're working with the EASR to make sure uh, that we have that part of the world represented. But um, Helsinki as well have always been um, enormously helpful to the RSP since since we started pretty much and are always willing to help us out. So, yeah, we're 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 doing OK for Eastern Europe and Northern Europe at the moment. We're still underrepresented for some places in the world, though, um, Africa, uh, you know, Asia and India, uh, we've South America is working out all right, but um, you know Antarctica. If you're on any of these um, continents, you know, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you, even if it's only to write a couple of responses or record a couple of interviews. Uh, you'd be helping not only the RSP but the whole community of uh, religious studies scholars. If you want to help out, you can also donate to our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash projectrs. Um, if you just want to to contribute as little or as much as you want on a regular or one-off basis. Even and one pound would help us out. Yeah, or one dollar. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and you can also... Um, Use our Amazon.co.uk.com and .ca links at no cost to you um, when you're doing whatever shopping that you might be doing on there. Don't forget to subscribe um, on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, iTunes, YouTube, and indeed on the website to our MailChimp if you want to receive sort of custom alerts. And do check in on the discussion both on all those platforms and on the website itself. Um, there have been some quite good discussions on there where keen to stir the pot some more absolutely but until next week my friends thanks for listening <laughs>